Well, tonight we're going to ask this question. How could Jesus die the second death if he rose again in three days? And so there's several questions that we can look at this evening. We want to comment about what happened to Jesus when he died on the cross. What do we mean when we say that Jesus died the second death on the cross? If he did die the second death on the cross, then how could he be resurrected? And what does the Apostle Paul mean in Romans 3, verses 25 and 26, about Christ being set forth to demonstrate his righteousness? And did Jesus die as our legal substitute? If so, wouldn't he have to stay dead forever? And here's another question we're going to answer tonight. Is the second death a a penalty that is imposed by God on the wicked, or is it a natural consequence of sin? And finally, how do you explain those fierce temptations that, that that just wrung out the heart of Jesus on the cross? Well, uh, that, these questions all kind of uh, focus our thoughts now on the white-hot crisis of the plan of salvation. You know, God invites us to identify in the agony and in the joy of his son in that awful hour when he saved us. You know, it's only by having a clearer picture, clearer view of the message of the cross that our hearts are moved in genuine repentance You know, what was it that moved the hearts of the people on the day of Pentecost? There were many Jews there who listened to the apostles preach on the day of Pentecost, and there were even some Pharisees there, some leaders of the Jews. It was Peter's proclamation of the cross, wasn't it? When he said to them, um, and you were the ones that put him on the cross, You nailed him there. And their hearts were pricked, and then they said, what must we do to be saved? And as a result, there was a deep repentance that took place on the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the people, weren't they? And we believe that the Holy Spirit is yet to be poured out in in immeasurable quantities in these last days, and it will be preceded by a proclamation of the message of the cross. So it's well worth our study as we're looking forward to the latter rain. So open your Bible to Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. There are two, two Christs. There's a false Christ and there's a true Christ. And they're presented here in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. It says, And all who dwell on the earth. How many? All. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There will be those who will worship the Lamb, whose names are written in the book of life. All the rest who dwell on the earth will worship him. That is the false Christ. So there's the true Christ and there's a false Christ here. 
in Revelation 13 and verse 8. And of course, the lamb, that's speaking of the sacrificial, the sacrificial Jesus, isn't it? The crucified one. The lamb slain is the Christ crucified. The true Christ is the Christ of the cross. The Christ of Babylon, the one is the one who spurns the cross. This false Christ met with some misfortunes, it's true, and it has sometimes been wept for even to this day, just as the ancients wept for Tammu. He has endured some temporary discomforts, but his place in the Trinity wasn't affected at all. Giving up your physical life for three days when you're sure you're going to get it back, and when all the time uh, the part of you called the Son of God didn't die at all, but went to paradise, isn't so much a sacrifice as pouring out his soul unto death, as Jesus did. The false Christ, then, didn't really die on the cross. The true Christ truly died on the cross. The, uh, therefore, the cross of Babylon's Christ is not a true cross at all. The Catholic view of the cross is different from the truth. Ellen White adds that everything short of the religion of the cross is a deception. The true Christ is the one of the cross. The false one is the one who is opposed to the cross. It follows that the true Christ is the one who will draw all men unto himself if he's lifted up as the crucified one. You find that in John 12, verse 34. The false Christ, he is a very radiant and winsome and lovable and kindly one who draws all men literally, except those who are written in the Lamb's book of life when he's lifted up, but not signifying what death he should die. In other words, the power of this Christ to appeal is in his hands, his winsome, lovable ways to make people happy and relaxed and integrated and to give them an abundant life apart from the appeal of the cross. The false Christ will have absolutely everything the true Christ has, the power to heal the sick, to cast out the demons, to cleanse the lepers, to set people free from their anxieties and worries, to feed thousands, to smile constantly, to have a radiant personality, everything absolutely except the nail prints of the cross. I don't know, it reminds me of, uh, have you ever seen the uh, medieval church's portraits of, the, of Christ? It's always got a little smile on his face, always a very winsome individual, you know. Since the false Christ will appeal apart from his cross, which he has none, he will have no cross for his believers to bear. He will pamper, he will flatter their ego and self in mysterious, clever ways. He will induce them to confess their faults and their sins and their mistakes and to beat and to pinch and to flagellate and to starve and to ignore the old man or self just so long as that self is not crucified and done to death. When he is cornered, when the self is cornered, 
Maybe such words like this will be spoken. Well, I'll have to give myself a dressing down and put myself in, in its place. But it really doesn't involve an utter surrender of self. He will never divulge a way to surrender the self. However, except to ignore him and think nothing of him and go ahead and keep looking to Baal. Let's look at the true Christ. On the cross, he felt the horror of eternal darkness. You know, uh, the, the divine one, Jesus, Paul says that he was made to be sin for us there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. So the us there is the whole load of the human race was put upon him. And he felt the crushing load of the entire enormous guilt of the whole human family. So you combine the sin of the world, and that is what he bore. Look at second, or 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. So in Jesus' deepest soul, he felt the despair of guilt of every sinner upon the, in the, as they lived on the world. Here's what it says, 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. So he died for the human race, and he died as the human race, our second Adam. And in dying the equivalent of our second death, he delivered the human race from that death. You know the little book, Desire of Ages? Let me just share with you some little uh, phrases from it in, to this effect. Ellen White says, The guilt of a world lying in wickedness, the sense of God's wrath against sin, he felt it against himself personally. It was crushing out his life. So great is the weight of guilt which he must bear that he is tempted to fear that it will shut him out forever from his father's love. As man, he must suffer the consequences of man's sin, and the consequences are eternal death. He will save man at any cost to himself. He had borne that which no human being could ever bear, for he had tasted the sufferings of death for every man. The guilt of every descendant of Adam of every age was pressing upon his heart. The Son of God, the sin-bearer, endures judicial punishment for iniquity and becomes sin itself for man. Guiltless, he bore the punishment of the guilty. Those are all statements from Desire of Ages. Well, I, to put this in sharp focus, we could ask two questions. What is to be the punishment of the guilty? The answer to that is what? It's, it's death, isn't it? Okay. And what did God say to Adam in the garden there? But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For the day in which you eat of it, thou shalt surely die. Okay? And then Paul says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is, is death. And Ezekiel 18, verse 4 says, The soul that sinneth, it shall what? It shall die. Now look at this one in Revelation 2. And verse 11, we're thinking about what is to be the punishment of the guilty. Revelation 20 and verse 14. 
I'm sorry, Revelation 2.11, yeah. It says, he that overcometh. Do you see it there? Revelation 2, verse 11. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Do you see that? All right. There's great pain involved in the second death. The question we want to ask is what kind of pain? It says hurt there, doesn't it? Hurt of the second death. Is that talking about the physical pain of being burned up? Or is it talking about something else? We want to talk about that. Okay. Again, in Revelation 20, verse 14, it talks about the second death. It says that death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. All right, so if the second death means goodbye to life forever, there's no coming back from that, then there must be a first death, correct? There must be a first death. And that is what we witness every time we go to a funeral or we sit with a loved one and we watch them expire. And that's called the first death. The interesting thing is that the Bible teaches that that death that we witness is called sleep. Okay? And you can look at John chapter 16 where Jesus said of Lazarus, who had expired, our friend Lazarus sleepeth, okay? Why did Jesus call that first death asleep? Because Jesus has turned death into a sleep and there, because there's a resurrection when he comes for everyone, see? That's why it's asleep. It's not goodbye to life forever. There's a resurrection from this first death, okay? Everybody's going to be raised. Everybody. Now, the, but the Bible says that, now, does the Bible say that Christ went to sleep for our sins? Because if that's the case, then he had a nice little three-day vacation after he died Friday on, at Calvary. He had a nice vacation from all the trials and tribulations that he'd gone through down here on this earth. And... Um, you know, he woke up happy on Sunday morning and he went back to his father. Is that the kind of death that he experienced, to sleep? No, the Bible does not say that he went to sleep for our sins. It says Christ died for our sins. See? Well, did he suffer the true punishment for our sin? Well, I'll tell you, the answer had better be yes or we're all lost for eternity if he didn't die the true death for our sins on the cross. If he died the first death for our sins on the cross, then we're all lost for eternity. Because that is not the way, that's not the wages that sin pays. Sin pays the wages of eternal death. Goodbye to life forever. The Bible says that he bore the iniquity of us all. He tasted our death, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man, it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Well, when you begin to realize what that means, then don't you think that you can rejoice with joy? Amen. You can have joy in your heart. Well, then you say, well, if he said goodbye to life forever, then how could he be resurrected? How could he be resurrected? Well, 
To misread Revelation 20.14 out of its context can create confusion. Look at Revelation 20.14 again, where it says that, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. It says this is the second death. Is the second death merely the physical temperature of the fire that's burning? Is that, is that the pain of this, lake, uh, of this second death, of this lake of fire? You know, on the cross, Jesus hardly felt the physical pain so much as the spiritual anguish that he went through. Uh, Desire of Ages says he was made sin for us. So, you know, in the final hour when the lost are facing the judgment and uh, the lake of fire, I would suggest this, that the lost will hardly even feel the physical pain of the lake of fire because their spiritual anguish will be so great it will overshadow it. You see, they will finally realize their true guilt. So the despair which Jesus endured was what the lost will feel. The pain, that's the pain of the second death. That's what Revelation 2.11 means. He shall not be hurt of the second death. The hurt of the second death is a spiritual anguish of realizing the guilt, you see, the guilt. The Bible says that Jesus poured out his soul unto death. Therefore, the Father honors him supremely to divide him a portion with the great. Uh, Desire of Ages 753, it says, Christ felt the anguish which the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. That's a good statement, what you were saying there. Desire of Ages 753. So the phrase, this is the second death, does not limit the torment to physical pain, even though as children we could imagine nothing greater. But uh, verses 12 and 13 make clear that the real pain will be the self-condemnation that is aroused by a full realization of guilt for those things which were written in the books according to their works. There is no agony greater than seeing that record in all of its horrible exactness when there's no Savior to deliver from it. Desire of Ages 58 says, In the day of final judgment, every lost soul will understand the nature of his own rejection of truth. Before the vision of Calvary with its mysterious victim, sinners will stand condemned. You know, God has written in the conscience of every individual, and that includes not only people that he creates on this earth, but also the heavenly intelligence and the angels. Did you know that God has written into everyone his law? Yeah. He has written into every one of us the principles of his law. Now, some people have really, well, all of us have repressed that since sin started. You know, the only way that Adam and Eve could deal with the guilt of their sin to begin with, was to repress the knowledge of God. The pain was so terrible. So they just put it into the subconscious file of the mind. 
you know. It's the work of the gospel to uh, convict of sin. And God has written the principles of his truth, of his righteousness, in every individual's heart so that when the word is proclaimed, it rings true because it's written there. And then the Holy Spirit induces an individual to repentance. Wouldn't you say that it's much better to go through this wonderful work of cleansing through repentance now while we have a mediator rather than to go through repentance when there is no mediator? (laughs) And we would be standing before our life record and that law that has been written into the conscience of everyone finally comes out in in all of its full-blown revelation and we suddenly realize that we missed the boat. There's the cross being presented. Much better now to go through the healing process of repentance. Amen? And that's what the proclamation of the cross does for us today. Yeah. I'm going to come to it here later in my study, and I actually brought it in here uh, earlier than I intended to bring it in. Oh, okay. Well, um, Jesus went through that experience. He poured out his soul unto death. Therefore, the Father honors him supremely to divide him a portion with the great, it says, he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Isaiah 53, 11 and 12. It had to be that God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it, according to Acts 2, verse 24. And those pains were not mere sleep. Not only did he make the total commitment of his soul unto eternal death, not seeing through the portals of the tomb, he actually experienced the agony of the real second death. But his agape, his love, made it not possible that he should be held by the tomb. So this principle of the resurrection becomes an eternal principle that as we choose to be crucified with him, Paul says, it, it, it also cannot possibly, we cannot possibly be held in the grasp of the second death. Romans 6, 5 says, If we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Our burden is lifted. We can sing hallelujah. Now, although Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, he wasn't set forth as being crucified. He wasn't manifested as being crucified until A.D. 31. So about 4,000 years of human history had passed before God showed that he was the lamb crucified from the foundation of the world. So the cross is an eternal principle. It exists because of sin. In other words, the lamb has always had to bear the sin of sinners. And the benefit for the sinner is that they live. They have a temporary life. This is why Adam and Eve lived 
after they sinned because the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. So do you think that uh, a sin just hurt Jesus during the 33 years that he lived on this earth or maybe just the few hours before he was crucified or maybe just when he was put on the cross? No. He has been the bearer of sin for well over 6,000 years. So we need to realize that his pain has been going on for quite some time since the very beginning. See? Um, would you like to relieve him of that pain? You can do your part to do that by appreciating his death for you and turning in repentance to him. You make his heart glad and you soften the pain that he continues to bear for the sin of the world. You think that he'll still feel the pain for eternity? Well, um, he, there are always consequences to sin. And those consequences will be lessons throughout eternity, won't they? Now... Right. Jesus is going to bear the scars of the crucifixion throughout eternity. Those are the consequences of sin. Even though the earth and the universe have been forever cleansed from the active principle of sin, uh, he will still be a human being because he was given to the world by God not as a temporary gift, right? He was given forever, correct? So he will always be God in human flesh. And so that also is a consequence of sin. See? I, I, I think in this sense we can ind indicate that the, the cross is of such depth and infinite um, grace that it will be the science of our, sol or of our study uh, throughout eternity. You know, we will always be uh, learning and growing and understanding, and it will always be an antidote for sin to ever re make a return visit, you know. So um, now I want to bring in uh, uh, another dimension. The, cro the cross has a legal dimension. It also has uh, an appeal to our hearts. But it's important for us to see its legal foundation because I, I can use this illustration. My, my wife has, uh, oh, when we made a visit back to our family there in New Orleans, we picked up the bigger picture of her when she was uh, 18 years of age. And I said, you know, that's the girl that I fell in love with. Oh, this is just a, she's a knockout in this picture, I'll tell you. Just really beautiful. And she gave me one of those pictures when we were first dating to put in my wallet. And when we were separated, well, I'd pull that picture out frequently. I'll have to bring it sometimes because I'm very proud of my wife. I want you to see what she looked like when she was 18. <laughs> That's the girl I fell in love with. Now, if, she, if at that time, 
When we were on a, a little trip back to New Orleans, she had her rib broken in an accident when someone was driving a vehicle, and they did an x-ray on her bones. Now, if she'd given me a picture to begin with of an x-ray of her bones, you'd think that that would have had such an effect upon my emotions and <laughs> my falling in love with her. Here, honey, here's a picture, uh, x-ray of my bones. <laughs> no, it wouldn't, you know. Uh, it's the picture of her as a young person there with that graduation hat on in, in that white gown, you know, as she's marching. That's the girl that I fell in love with, you know. Uh, but beneath that exterior surface, there's a bone structure, correct? Because if there isn't any bone structure, then what is my wife going to look like? She's going to look like a jellyfish if she doesn't have a bone structure. And I wouldn't fall in love with a jellyfish either. <laughs> That's why I keep telling her I'm in love with the whole package, <laughs> everything about her. But uh, what attracts us to Jesus is his love, is, his, is the beauty of his sacrifice for us, correct? But Jesus isn't a jellyfish, is he? He has a structure. There is a, a, a legal reason why he had to die on the cross, and the legal reason for that is that the divine law had to be upheld. Correctamente? <laughs> so that's the legal basis of, of uh, the cross. He died because, just of what we were talking about a minute ago, and that is that God has written his law upon the hearts of every one of his creatures. So there is this sense of divine justice that permeates the whole universe as well as this world, even though it's been repressed here in this world because of sin. And so justice demands that the law be upheld and not abolished. See? That's the legal structure, the legal meaning for his death upon the cross. And so therefore we have scriptures like this in Romans chapter 5 and verse 16 where it says the judicial action following upon the one offense of Adam resulted in a verdict of condemnation, but the act of grace of Christ following on so many misdeeds resulted in a verdict of acquittal. Now, that's legal language, legalese of the Bible. <laughs> but what it is saying is that when Adam sinned, legally the law condemned him to die, and rightly so. He should have died. But God found a legal way to justify the continued life of Adam, and that is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, upholding the justice of the law of God and taking the sinner's punishment justly deserved according to the law. So there has to be this legal aspect to the sacrifice, to the atonement. Uh, well, uh, let's take your argument. And, you know, Satan is the accuser, right, in the great court session. And he can come in and let's take you, for example. Here you are, say, before the court of justice of heaven. And Satan says, 
I'm accusing him of being a terrible sinner. He deserves to die eternally. He's mine. I claim him. Well, you have an advocate who is Jesus Christ. And the Father has appointed Jesus to be the judge, right? So all of the odds are in your favor because the Father has appointed Jesus as your judge as well as your defense attorney. And Jesus says this to the accuser. He says, you, you can't touch Ernie because Ernie has an appreciation for the fact that I died for his sins upon the cross. Therefore, he has been pardoned legally because I upheld the law on his behalf when I died on the cross. Mm. Furthermore, he understands that this forgiveness of sins means he loves me so much that he chooses to let me restore and change his life so that he is not a practicing sinner. So Jesus is your... This isn't a loophole for, for uh, you know, if, if there was a loop, it was a loophole, Satan would exploit it, wouldn't he? And he would win the case, but he doesn't win the case because Jesus has the greater argument here. Uh, oh, by the way, the, the fact is that no believer in Jesus ever has to personally appear in court. Because the court session is going on right now. Correct? So you have an, you have an appointed defender for you who is representing you right now in absentia. You're in absentia. <laughs> uh, you're, you're in the dock in absentia. You're not there in person. Because Jesus is representing your case. I would say that's good news too, right? I don't know how many of you have ever been in the courtroom. I just, my knees knock even when I'm called on jury duty. <laughs> Much less being called in as a defendant, you know. So no, there is no legal, there's no loophole here because if there was, then Satan would be able to exploit it and undermine um, the cross. And he can't. He's not capable of doing it. So what I wanted you to see here is uh, there is a, a legal dimension here to this. And just one statement from uh, Ellen White from Desire of Ages six, 763. Satan declared that mercy destroyed justice, that the death of Christ abolished the Father's law. Had it been possible for the law to be changed or abolished, then Christ need not have died. All right? Now, what that says is that God could have said, all right, I'm going to just forgive everybody, and Jesus doesn't have to die on the cross. What does that mean? That means the law is just swept under the rug. Now, there's a loophole there. There's a problem there, right? Okay. She says, had it been possible for the law to be changed or abrogated, then Christ need not have died. But to abrogate the law would be to immortalize sin and place the world under Satan's control. It was because the law was changeless, because man could be saved only through obedience to its precepts, that Jesus was lifted up 
on the cross. The only way for God to love sinners and to pardon them, as well as to uphold his law, every one of those principles was for Jesus to go to the cross. See? Okay? So this is what we mean by the legal aspect of the atonement on the cross. Um, running out of time. Does the sinner bring the... Uh, the other dimension of the cross is, is the aspect of his love. I want to go to that part of it. Ellen White says this in fourth volume of Testimonies, page 625. A true sense of the sacrifice and intercession of the dear Savior will break the heart that has become hardened in sin. And love, thankfulness, and humility will come into the soul. This is the true religion of the Bible. Everything short of this is a deception. Then she says in Signs of the Times, May 30, 1895, the atonement was made as a manifestation of the love that was, all, that was re- already in, the, in God's heart. The death of Christ was expedient in order that mercy might reach us with its full pardoning power and at the same time that justice might be satisfied in the righteous substitute. Well, there's two dimensions, and maybe I'll go back to my illustration of my wife's picture. Okay? When I, when I look at that picture, when I see her, my heart just melts. And I'm, I'm compelled by love. See? I'm drawn to her. If I just saw her bones, it wouldn't have that impact on me. Right? If all that you knew about the cross was that God was very, very concerned about his law, and you didn't know anything about his love, would that draw you to God? No, that would be legalisms, wouldn't it? That would be legal religion. The legal part has to be there. But when we begin to appreciate the love of God, then that's what draws us to Jesus, isn't it? Now, The restoration of the true principle of the cross is this. By the way, I'm going to say this again. That is that anyone who believes in the immortality of the soul can never understand the cross. Never. A person who believes that the soul is immortal, when you die, where do you go? You go, death is the doorway to heaven, right? Or if you've been bad done bad things, then you've earned hell. You go there and burn, right? That's what the teaching of the immortal soul is. Would you say that most Christians believe that? I say this very respectfully, that our Christian friends don't understand the cross then. 
because of that belief. Because if that's how you understand death, then when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die on the cross. And that's what most people believe. And by the way, even those who understand the immortality, that the soul, that the person is mortal, they understand the mortality of the soul. Most people believe that Jesus didn't really die on the cross either. They believe maybe the Son of Man died, but not the Son of God. I want you to think this through. Just to, Do you see the first point that I'm trying to make about the immortal soul belief? Because, you see, if Jesus truly died on the cross, then he did die the second death. And he said goodbye to life forever. He gave up everything. He even gave up the hope of the resurrection. But now what do you do with the aspect of the Son of God? When Jesus died on the cross, he was both human and divine, correct? Because you cannot separate those two from him. So some will say, okay, well, it's only his human part that died on the cross because you can never kill the divine part. It was the Son of Man that died, not the Son of God. If I made this a quiz and said true or false, how would you answer that? I'm not going to ask you to say, answer that question. The answer to that question is that he surrendered both himself as Son of Man and Son of God eternally. Here's the thing. Now you have a question on your brow. Let me see if we can answer it here. Um, first of all, the price that Jesus paid was kind of threefold. First of all, he, he gave up his eternal family relationship with his Father and with the Holy Spirit that he'd had forever. He, gave, he said goodbye to that forever, okay? Secondly, he could not see through the portals of the tomb, so he did not have the hope of the resurrection. Ellen White says that. And thirdly, he surrendered his own autonomous exercise of his divine power. He turned that over forever to the Father. So in that sense, the Son of Man and the Son of God died the second death on the cross. And you want to discuss that a little bit? So <laughs> the point is that when you see that kind of self-sacrificing love, that's agape. See, that, there's no self in that whatsoever. There's no self-interest. What Was he tempted to not do that? What was the biggest temptation for Jesus on the cross? Understanding that he took our nature that inclined him not to give up self. <laughs> well, do you know what his greatest temptation was? To, to think that his sacrifice would not be sufficient to save everyone on this earth. It wouldn't be enough for everybody. That was his biggest temptation, according to Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 53. So Jesus didn't think of himself at all when he died upon the cross. Well, he did pray, yeah. Father, take this cup from me. You know, now, what, mm -hmm. what was 
the cup, what was that? The I. Was I? Yeah. Oh, I'm not saying that he didn't wrestle with... No, no self wants to die, right? This is why we find, we, from our human side, we say, crucified with Christ, myself, my big ego has to die. We, we fight that to no end, you know? We think that's the biggest difficulty confronting a Christian when we see that Jesus died the ultimate death to self, then we realize that being crucified with him really becomes easy, and it's not hard. Why? Because the love of Christ constraineth us. It compels us. See, love changes things. And I'm, I'm learning this about my relationship with my wife, too. You know, there are... 90% of the things that I do with my wife are just easy because I just love her. Then every once in a while, she'll say, now, honey, this needs fixing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then when it becomes a honeydew project, then my old self starts to rise up again, you know? I'm actually training myself to say yes to everything that she asks me to do, even the 10% that I don't want to do <laughs> because it becomes easier than to do the 10%. <laughs> and why? Because I love her so much. You see, now the more deeply in love we come with Jesus, the easier it becomes to be crucified with Him. This involves repentance, turning from self and turning to Him, which is induced by the Holy Spirit. Would you? like to be in complete harmony with God, with Jesus, this is the pathway. The pathway, being crucified with him. Someone has their hand up. Um, so Matthew said that he died. Mm -hmm. He said um, he died the second death. Mm -hmm. His second death is to invite to die to us. And he is 100% human and 100% divine. What? Did he, he know that he's resurrected right now and he is our mediator right now? Mm -hmm. he, he, he did not goodbye to life forever. He was resurrected. Yeah, but you must understand that he did not have the hope of the resurrection when he made that commitment. He could not see through the portals of the tomb. Well, you say, well, he was divine, so he certainly could see through, because God knows everything. Certainly it his divinity could see that. Remember, he surrendered the independent use of his divinity. He turned that all over to the Father. Now, it was his divinity, his own divinity, that brought himself forth from the tomb. Why? Because the Father awakened him by sending the angel down there. The permission was given by the Father. And the tomb couldn't hold him because he personally had never activated sin. 
He per and so therefore, the tomb is Satan's, um, what, what do we call a San Quentin? Huh? Okay. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's the big house where you're locked up and you die in there, you know? And the, the, the tomb is Satan's big house where he throws the key away. But so that's when, when Jesus died and he was put in the grave, Satan says, I've got him now forever, you know? And the reason why he couldn't hold him legally is because personally he never sinned. And he was pure agape, 100%. No self whatsoever. So therefore, the Father could give him permission legally to burst himself forth from the tomb, and Satan could not say a word about it. He couldn't make any case whatsoever to the universe over it. So during that time <laughs> when Christ on the cross, he doesn't have any idea that he will be resurrected? No. Now, that you can help me out on this, you know, I'm, I'm always open, and if you have some evidence to help me on that, um, I'd be happy to hear that. Sister White does say that, the, the, that divinity cannot be killed, you know, it cannot be, be put to death. Absolutely correct. So the only way that one can understand that then is that he has surrendered this independent use of it to the Father in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back a little ways um, about the, uh, we were talking about how uh, you were saying that the wicked would not feel the pain of the trial because they would be feeling their guilt and yeah. uh, that there, there is no mercy and so forth. And they would... Now, I read... Ellen White said, now correct me if I'm wrong, uh, she, I don't know if you read it, but um, she said that Satan and his angels are going to feel the pain of... Now, I don't know if it's the pain of fire, but she says they're going to, every morsel of their body uh, is going to feel the pain, I guess of the burning or whatever. Uh, she says even down to the toe. Uh, and all the rest of their body is consumed and there's just a little morsel of flesh left. They're going to feel that pain. Now, I'm not, I don't know what she meant, if that was the pain. Are you sure those are her words? I'm, I'm you know. I, yeah, I read that. Um, now, I don't, I don't, it was been some time ago that I read that. And, uh, uh, but I well, I know that she says that he will be the last one to be exterminated. He'll burn longer he'll than burn all longer. of the rest. Of now, I'm not sure if she meant the wicked will feel that or if it's just him and his angels. I don't know what pain she was really referring to, whether it was the fire or the pain that we were discussing here. Uh, well, um, I don't know if there is any more conscience left in Satan. 
if there is any more of that law that has been, was originally written upon his nature. But I would say there is, because every creature has it written there. Romans 1. Yeah, Romans 1 and Romans 2 is where it is. The law that is written in their nature. He's talking about the heathen there. Maybe, maybe you can look it up and we give us a specific text here on it, uh, Brian. Have you heard, ever heard these statements? There's a, quite a list of them. Um, Ellen White, one selected, Messages 235. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. Um, our high calling. Every man who is destroyed will destroy himself. Uh, Great Controversy, page 36. God does not stand toward the sinner as an executioner of the sentence against transgression, but he leaves the rejecters of his mercy to themselves to reap that which they have sown. Desire of Ages, page 764. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all who unite with him place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence is to them a consuming fire. The glory of him who is love will destroy them. Uh, well, the, we know that the lake of fire, according to Matthew, uh, is prepared only for the devil and his angels. It says it was never prepared for any human being, sinner or otherwise, at all. Um, so on the basis of that, the, the, the wicked are going to pronounce their own judgment. In fact, Jesus says there in John chapter 12 that even he does not judge them on the last day. It's the word that will judge them, he says. Do you remember that text? It's the word that will judge them. And what is the word? The word's the cross. You know, and what is the cross? It's the gospel and the law. Uh, so in that final judgment, you know, just before the lake of fire, the cross will be uplifted. And, and the lost will see that. And the terrible record of their sins written at the cross because everyone has been written in the Lamb's book of life. And by unbelief, they have rejected that. And um, as a consequence, they make the choice to um, be consumed by the fire. 
because, uh, you know, taking a bus ride from hell to, he to New Jerusalem, you know, if they got off the bus in the New Jerusalem and walked around, they wouldn't stay there very long. They'd get right back on the bus and say, take me back to hell because they couldn't take New Jerusalem. <laughs> it's true. That's what uh, C.S. Lewis wrote as a parable of the wicked. You know, they just wouldn't feel comfortable at home there anymore. All right, well, thank you for... Uh, I, 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 the main point being this, that the more that we have appreciation for the message of the cross, um, this is what is the Holy Spirit desires to bless among his people. This is really, if I could put it kind of in common vernacular, and appreciation of the cross of Christ is what will bring the outpouring of the latter rain of the Holy Spirit because this is what reconciles hearts that are alienated from God to him. And this is the last message that, of mercy that is to go out to a whole perishing world. And if you have loved ones, you know, who have a, a, a very crooked idea about God, that he's a vengeful individual, he's just looking out to get them. Most people have this idea that they're going to go to heaven if, they, if they're good enough, mm -hmm. and if they haven't quite been good enough, then God is going to just pitch them into hell. He's just that way. And the whole world has this idea about God. That's not the gospel of the Bible. And as the Lord reveals to you the deeper principles of the cross... You're commissioned to go share this with family and with neighbors and tell them the good news. Amen? This is something to witness for, something to get excited about, truly, from the heart. You see, the true outpouring of the Holy Spirit is not a lot of jumping around and waving your hands and saying, ooh, la, 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 hallelujah. You know, when Mary had that seventh devil cast out of her, she didn't raise up her hands and say, Hallelujah. There were tears in her eyes, and she went to Jesus, and he, she expressed her heartfelt thanks and appreciation. You see, that's genuine revival and reformation. All of this hoopala, this isn't revival and reformation at all. It's only superficial. It's only the message of the cross that brings genuine change and revival and reformation. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Dear Father, we thank you this evening for revealing to us from the Holy Word the power of the cross in our lives. And we pray that you will help us to get our fingertips on this big idea of the principle of the cross, how it can cleanse us from our sin. It's Jesus' gift to us as our heavenly psychiatrist in these final days of earth's history. Bless each one, and we ask this in the Savior's name. Amen.